Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, welcome back, everybody. Today, we are joined by Christopher Hurtado. Christopher, you're coming, kind of becoming a, a standard on the show here now. I'm a regular. So, welcome back. You're a regular. It's good to be you know, back. Ben is, Thanks for having me on. Ben is down with his family in Florida, and they were on vacation. And so, Christopher has graciously agreed to join us today. And we're going to talk about section 124. I think it's going to be kind of a brief conversation today because there's a lot here. In fact, this is one of the largest sections in the Doctrine and Covenants. And it's really for an interesting time and place in church history. And just to recap the last two episodes that we've done, the Doctrine and Covenants are really interesting because until 1838, from about 1829 until 1838, for those nine years, there's a lot of revelation. And and the revelations keep coming and coming and coming. And then after Liberty Jail, from the winter of 1838 until the spring of 1839, we get sections 121 through 123, like we talked about last week. And then we have a two-year break. And we don't, and there's no recorded revelation. There's no revelation that's included. Now, this is interesting because this is during a time where, like we said last week, is that Liberty Jail really influences Joseph. Like, he's not the same person who goes into Liberty Jail as he is coming out of it. You know, and, and I don't know if any person can go into that kind of situation without it really changing him. But there's a couple things that, Christopher, you and I have talked about uh, here just before recording about Section 124. But just to recap, um, because I think we want to talk more about how to make the land holy and how to make the land sacred. And I think there's going to be some really good conversation there. So Section 124 begins where Joseph is commanded to put together a basic proclamation to the leaders of countries. And what this is supposed to do is it's it's supposed to... It's supposed to be something that uh, makes these leaders of nations aware. And it's interesting that Joseph is getting this because he's being told not to fear the leaders of countries, but he's not necessarily told everything that's going to be included into this proclamation. And in fact, later on, he's going to incorporate, the Lord's going to tell him to incorporate Sidney Rigdon and a few others into helping him to write this discourse. But this proclamation is supposed to go out to the whole world and to to make them aware of the Latter-day Saints and their plight. Also, we have... A section, you know, like with the Doctrine and Covenants a lot, you have a lot of people wanting to receive direct revelation from Joseph. You know, Joseph, go ask the Lord and go ask him about me and 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 get these revelations for me. And sometimes the Lord just comes right through Joseph and, and gives him a message intended for someone. Usually you did good or you done bad. And it usually falls into one of those two categories. And And in this way, there's section 124 has a lot of that. And... But where Section 124 begins new is now we're in Nauvoo. 
you know, it was commerce. They've drained the swamp. They've laid the, they've laid the roads. They're starting to build the infrastructure of Nauvoo. And there's two things that are going to be commanded to be built here in Nauvoo. And the first thing is going to be the Nauvoo house. And so the command com- comes in to build the Nauvoo house. This is going to be a place for the saints to entertain foreign travelers. So if there's ever any person or weary traveler or just someone passing through town, almost like a hotel to where they can come in, they can stay, they can be at peace, they can be in safety, that out here in the frontier where things may be dangerous here, this is where you're going to find safety. And so, you know, this a lot of these things that they were talking about in wanting to make the Nauvoo house reminded me a lot of the ancient customs and traditions regarding foreign strangers coming in and the laws of hospitality. And so we're kind of reincorporating those themes back into Nauvoo. And then second of all, the Lord commands him to start to prepare to build the temple. And so the, the Nauvoo temple revelation comes in and now we have the command that this is going to be something that we're going to start to do again. And, you know, just to, just to kind of put myself in that place with the saints, I'm like, I don't know if, I don't know if I would be really excited to hear that again, (laughs) but, but they're getting the call to build the temple again. And this is where baptisms for the dead are introduced. And, and the Lord has said, Hey, you know, you could do this in your poverty without it from time to time, but this ordinance is reserved for the temple. And then God goes through and talks about the different ordinances that are going to be involved in the temple from the washings, the anointings, the baptisms. And then he even goes into things like the solemn assemblies and the, and the memorials, the, you know, where you can receive statutes and judgment judgments and a place for glory, honor, and endowment. There's a lot of these things that the the temple becomes the mode of the saints in a very particular way. And so this call to be able to build on the land and to, and to build a temple on the land, it creates a sense that they're going to be here for a long time. And so in being there for a long time, there's a sense of permanence. And a sense of permanence really kind of helps you become present in those moments. So 124 concludes with the... with. Hiram Smith being called as the patriarch. So now we have a new patriarch. It was, it was uh, Joseph Smith Sr. And Joseph Smith Sr. is getting old. He's soon going to um, pass away. And so Hiram is called as the new patriarch. And that in itself is a fantastic and a fascinating history about what the patriarch was to the church and the interrelationship between the church patriarchs and, and the leader of the church and, and the president of the church. And we probably won't have time to go into that today, but so with 124, it concludes with talking about a series of people. They're calling people to the 12. They're calling people to 70. They're calling new officers there in, in Nauvoo, and they're really building the infrastructure. So, so that's kind of the brief overview of 124 and its context. But Christopher, let's talk a little bit here about making the land sacred. We talked, I, I think I may have been talking with you, and I don't know if I was talking with you or Ben. Remind me if it sounds familiar to you. But this concept that when they were going to Kirtland, or going from Kirtland to Missouri, there was this sense about living on the land as for years. You know, that comes from earlier revelations, I think in, section, in one of the sections, the 50s sections. I'll have to look it up. But they were trying to make the ground holy then. And then within six to eight months, they were kicked out of Missouri. And now like there's this, 
this new coming around again to where they're trying to make this place holy and they're trying to make a, a, a sense of permanence for themselves and in, in being empowered. What do you think about that? Man, it's got to be really hard for the saints at this point in time to feel like they're going to be in one place for a long time to really, right? To really believe that. And, and so I find it an interesting conversation to, to bring that point into intersection with another point, which is the idea. Now, on the one hand, they're being told to build this temple that's this rather permanent structure. If we go back to ancient Israel, where they have the tabernacle that moves with them, it sure seems they could have used something like that at this time. And yet they're being challenged to, to move forward in building this temple, even though, you know, what happened before and the last time they tried to do this and then they, and that was supposed to happen and they got excused from doing it in this section. And now they're being asked to do it again and to take this, this approach of, I'm really going to be here a while. And it, that's got to be so hard for them. And, and you wonder why, why this permanent structure? Why not this tabernacle like idea? Uh, as in ancient Israel. And so that, and we can talk about what it means to, of course, to have a sacred space. And, and the idea that wherever you are is really the center of, of the universe, meaning I'm not talking about planets and stars. I'm talking about the order, the created order of things, right? And the idea that you would build your temple, or even if it would be a tabernacle that's movable, the point is that wherever you are, that is holy ground. That is the place, the center of the universe where you build your temple, where you are, you're on the axis mundi, the, the axis of the world where heaven, earth, and hell connect. Oh man, you're bringing in some Eliade there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it. I was thinking about the same thing about, uh, about Eliade and, and his, you know, his work with the sacred and the profane. You know, he talks about Eliade's a, a famous religious theologian. He's not a theologian. He's a, a, a religious philosopher, as it were. He's more of a, a mystic. Comparative religious scholar, the first. Yeah. Yeah. And he really has this idea of how man has come to making things sacred, that there's this call that man has to be able to, and, and he's, and he falls into the camp of what's called a sui generis thinker, because in religious studies, there's this idea, and, and I float between the romantic side of me as sui generis, but the more rational and, and where I reside more is over in the other camp. But there's this, this idea that it's an answering the question, what is religious experience? Right. And what differentiates between a religious experience and a different kind of experience? Is religious experience an objective category in itself to where you experience that thing? So whenever someone says, I experienced that, it means that we've all experienced the same thing. How, how could we even know that, Shiloh? <laughs> well, yeah, that's one of the problems with sui generis, right? It's, it's, there's an epistemology like, how would we know if we did that or not? Yeah. But then there's another camp from this, from sui generis that says, no, it's not an objective experience. It's an experience that we use the language to define an experience we had that we deemed as religious or sacred. Yeah. You know, it reminds me of something a friend and mentor wrote recently. I, I saw this, that he had written this, that your religious experience, that you don't have to have a religion, quote unquote, or a church. Like there's this talk in the last conference of why you need a church. And this friend and mentor saying, I guess he's saying in a sense, he's implying at least that you don't need a church. He's, he's certainly saying that 
your religious experience is your religious experience, and it's not owned by the church or mediated by the church or defined by the church. It's your experience. It's all yours. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's really interesting because, you know, you talked about the Axis Mundi or, or kind of the center of the world, that this is the temple is symbolic of us. Right. We're, we're not symbolic of the temple. The temple is symbolic of us. In fact, the whole thing is supposed to be a representation of our journey, of our spiritual journey of ascension. Right. And, and I think it's fascinating because it does cover the four, the four or five basic philosophical discussions from metaphysics, epistemology, politics, you know, ethics, politics, and aesthetics. Because when we think about the temple, you know, their, their call is to create the temple and to create this sacred space and to go into this sacred space. And in that sacred space, they experience symbolically their own life journey, their own spiritual life journey. And, and the way they do this is in, through baptism. It's, it's fascinating because baptism is the lowest possible uh, physical ordinance in the temple. They always put the baptismal font in the lowest possible place, right? And they, they put it on the back of 12 oxen. And and this is an interesting thing Eliade talks about, is Eliade talks about is anciently to find sacred space, they would often offer a prayer. And if there was an animal that had made the, its appearance, such as a cow or an oxen or some kind of uh, animal, they would follow it or they would even shoot at it or shoot an arrow at it or do something with it. And then wherever it rested or wherever it died is where they would designate as the sacred place. And so animals became the kind of the, uh, the oracles to be able to find out where the sacred space is. And I think that's absolutely fascinating in the sense of the temple, because all of our temple journey from the Axis Mundi starts on the back of oxen on the back of the animals. And so, you know, symbolically, it's that our journey, our spiritual journey starts on the back of the covenants that we've made with God, that we go down into the waters of death. Now, now this is kind of funny because, because when we, uh, we, we think of baptism, a lot of the times we think of baptism as like spiritual bleach water, <laughs> you go down into the spiritual bleach water and you come out right. with white, you know, white. And it's not that at all. It's clean. not spiritual. Yes, you're being washed clean. It's not that at all. You know, symbolically, anciently, water was symbolic of chaos, of destruction, of oblivion, right? Of death. And so what this is, is you're going down into absolute destruction and oblivion. And what comes out of the water is not the same thing as what went into it. What comes out of the water is a rebirth, a a, a brand new birth, right? And so you stand there, if in complete afterbirth, and you have no context, you have no language, you have no identity, you have nothing. And the next stage from here is you're washed clean from, from this afterbirth, as it were, and you're given a new identity. There's a new name given, there is, there's a new identity. Let me just, Go ahead. Yeah, let me just interject at this point. I, I know we're on an ascension, and I want us to continue on this path, of course, but there's also a sense in which the temple is about a return, right? And Eliada talks about and uh, the myth of the eternal return is one of his books, and he talks about this returning to what he calls in ilo tempore, in that time, which is that primordial time. And so in, I'm asking, you know, I'm, I'm asking for this pause in the ascension because at this point we can see there's, there's two senses in which we can take that return. You're returning to 
back to chaos, right? Because you came from chaos into order and the creation. And so this is a recreation. You're returning to that primordial time of chaos, and then you're being recreated, a new creature, right? A new create creature means creation, right? That which is created. So you're being recreated a new creature. So when, so yeah, using that return, that return thing, let's keep that incorporated into this is that when we stand and we come up out of the waters with this brand new identity and we go into, we are washed, we're anointed, we're given a new name, we're given a new identity. We are told what all of these features are of this new entity. We're told what the head is and what the eyes are and what, and what the, the mouth and the ears are for. And we're told what, what all the functioning purposes of these things are. And, and we're given that new, that new, ascending that new rebirth, that new identity that we've assumed and what this all means. And then from this point, we enter into a a new realm of understanding where then at that point we're instructed in ethics and we're instructed in, in true political ethics. And how should we, how should we act independently? And then how should we act in relationship to each other? And this becomes the endowment, right? And so this is, this is where we've gone from the metaphysical baptism, epistemic, washing and anointing and now we're here in the in the ethics and the politics of the endowment and this leads us into a place of contemplation we notice that the endowment leads us through the veil and into the celestial room where there are no ordinances that are are done there on the the first endowment as we're going through that endowment and we're sitting there it's a place of contemplation where we sit and we contemplate and we just sit with god But is is sitting with God the ultimate manifestation? Is that the point of the whole thing? Because the next step from there comes that we move from the contemplation into the act of sealing. But it's not just sealing, just to be with each other, to, to marry the divine feminine and masculine into one unit. But it's that it's for the act of creation. Now, we often define that creation into the act of the creative powers of procreation and the sexual propagation of the species. But this kind of creation is seen by the gods in that it's it's any creation. Creation, I mean, even the act of breathing is creation. And so it shows that the truth that the aesthetic of God, the beauty of God is creation. And it and it's, it fascinates me that the very first act of God in the scriptures from the oldest scripture we have is the act of God in creating the earth that God begins and he demonstrates this, that aesthetic. And he does this out of chaos, right? And so, and so if we've reached the top of the ascension at this point, we've reached the top of the ascension, right? Yeah. Yeah. So now I can bring in this other return. There's another sense in which there's this return that happens at the temple because the temple itself, it's actually, shaped in the way that it's shaped in the way and this is goes all the way back to the ancient tabernacle and maybe easier to see in, in in ancient temples than today but you're looking at a return because we're returning to god through this ascension you've been talking about and i brought my first return in at the bottom right where we're returning to to chaos right and now we're returning to god and so in a sense you can say that we're going back into the matrix out of which we came there's a sense, there's very much a sense in which it looks like we're returning to the womb, that we're actually returning into the matrix from which we were born. And you can see that in the layout of an ancient temple. 
you know, it's really fascinating, especially incorporating the the conversation of the Beatitudes that we've talked about so much in that the first Beatitude and the last Beatitude, the, the poverty of spirit and the those who are persecuted for righteousness, they are both blessed, the first and the last, with the kingdom of heaven. And there's several commentaries that I've read that say this is a, a Greek rhetorical device to be able to basically build an ascension or to build a hierarchy just to topple it and connect the first to the last and the last to first to show that this wasn't necessarily a hierarchy, but this one eternal round. And I think it's interesting what you're saying there, Christopher, about that coming back into this this eternal return. We're always coming back in from the chaos and the order and, and that cyclical nature, because once you've worked your way through, you think you've worked your way through the whole beatitude path and you end up right back at the very beginning again. And it, and it becomes it becomes a journey as opposed to a destination. Yeah, we can see a reverse birth. I mean, there's a sense in which I've talked about it in which both the the first return and the second return I talked to are, are kind of the same. We could also see the whole process if we take your ascension as you've outlined it. We could see it as a reverse birth, right? From the waters of birth back to the matrix, back to the womb. Yeah. It's really interesting. That is interesting. And and it really it just it's just uncanny how much the layout of the ancient temple especially looks like a return to the matrix. How how would you say that? So uh, paint a picture for those listening. How would how would you think that the the way that the ancient temples are laid out uh, accomplishes that? Well, so you have the you have the the innermost sanctum, right? And and going into that it's it's just a little bit awkward to talk about. It's nice. To, it would be nice to have a, a an image that you can point to, like a, a diagram, even that you can point to, rather than to say, "Look, it looks like you're going back in between the legs." Oh, I see. Of the mother, right? Yeah. Into into the into the birth canal and back into the womb. This is what it looks like to enter into the temple and to go from the outside into the holy of holies, all the way in. Which makes Nicodemus's question. Not necessarily a sarcastic retort, but almost one that he can he can visualize what's going on and wonder about the really wonder about the physicalness of of the the possibilities of being born again. Is this what is, he's talking about? And then and Christ is Christ is like you're almost there. And so it's it's not a sarcastic response. Wow! But it's one that Christ is like you're you're there now. Let's just get you here. Yeah. Now that you put it that now that you bring Nicodemus into it. His question is one that can actually be answered, right? In the way that we, if you take, if you, if you think he's taking it literally, and by the way, maybe this is your misunderstanding because he's seeing something you're not seeing, maybe, then you can actually see now how he could be answered. Yeah, you can actually do that. Right. Yeah. Symbolically, of course. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. And so we, the, is the, I think this is really interesting about how we create permanent senses of permanence on the land through this kind of symbolism. You know, when when the saints came to to Missouri, it was build a temple. When the saints came to Kirtland, it was build a temple. When the saints came to Nauvoo, it was build a temple. And just just the need, the human need of building this edifice to be able to have this conversation. Well, I have a question about this, Shiloh. What's that? Because I wonder, so we've, it's been my assumption and it just occurred to me in this conversation after I last asked the question and then you started talking about it. Did they really need to build a building? It's maybe controversial to suggest that maybe they didn't. But again, I'm comparing to the ancient Israelites when they're told to, what are the words? Is it build a temple? Whatever the words are, right? You can tell me if it's quote unquote, build a temple 
does that necessarily mean building some kind of permanent edifice? Or are we talking about creating this sacred space, whatever it looks like, whether it be, you know, whether it be a, a tabernacle like an antiquity that's more portable or whether it be, by the way, how about when they did build the permanent edifice? It wasn't quite like the temple that we have today. I mean, church meetings, Sunday meetings happen in that space. Nowadays, we tell our, you know, the people outside of our church, oh, you know, this is our temple's different. This is where we, you know, this is the chapel. This is where we have our our meetings and you can come and the temple's different. And yet then it wasn't. So do you see what I'm getting at? What is, do they have to have this building? And if they do, is it really about the building or is it really about, again, this idea that we've been talking about, about sacred space and, and what that means symbolically and what you do with it symbolically? You know, I think this goes back to our, our initial conversation here between sui generis and, and deemed. And I think, I don't know if there is an objective way to answer that question so much as to say that it depends on which one you kind of, you take. If you think that the temple is an objective, holy space that you build it there and there's an objective thing that makes that objective holiness, then in that particular way, then yes, you absolutely need it. If it's a place that you go to and you deem as sacred and holy, then at that point, then it can become into question about its objective necessity. And then it's seen as a matter of utility as then as a matter of like universal necessity. Yeah. Well, it's interesting to consider how even when the building is built, that it has to be dedicated before it's actually considered sacred. Right. So that kind of answers that question a little bit. But it doesn't. It gives an answer at least. <laughs> but I don't think it does. But it doesn't. Yeah. And by the way, and by the way, you and I are philosophers. We don't have to answer these questions. We just have to ask really good questions, right? <laughs> And I think, you know, we can, hey, we don't have to, and, and we don't have to answer the questions for the listener, right? We raise the questions. These are things to think about. Yeah. You know, it, because the prayer itself, we can say that the prayer objectively s- sanctifies the land and makes it an objective holy space. We can also say that the prayer adds qualities of, of a modality of creating a deemed holy space. I mean, it looks like we're entering into some kind of relationship with the land, just as all the covenants really are about relationship, right? We're making this mean something, right? We're we're entering into into this sacred space or this sacred time. And wherever there's, we haven't talked about sacred time. Eliada would say, where there's sacred space, there's sacred time. I remember when I went to uh, one of my last trips to Utah, one of the last few trips to Utah that I made, I went to mass uh, to celebrate mass with Morgan Aldis. And we heard the homily and the priest said something about sacred space. And at that point in time, Morgan tells me, okay, I'm listening for, at that point, he's listening for sacred time. When's that going to show up? I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't maybe even a whole sentence later that sacred time shows up. It's interesting how those two things are connected, isn't it? Yeah, where do you see that coming in in this conversation in section 124 in the context of the Latter-day Saints building their the temple? What do you think? There's a lot of different things. So for instance, the the call to actually build the physical edifice comes in verses 24 through 28. He says, well, it's is it 24? I'm looking at it right here. And again, verily I say unto you, let all my saints come from afar and send ye swift messengers, yea, chosen messengers, and say unto them, come ye with all your gold and your silver and your precious stones and with all your antiquities and with all who have knowledge of antiquities, with all, 
that will come and may come and bring the box tree and the fir tree and the pine tree and together with all the precious trees of the earth and with iron and copper and with brass and zinc and with all your precious things of heaven and earth to build a house to my name for the most high to dwell therein. For there is not a place found on earth that he may come to and restore again that which was lost unto you or that which he has taken away even the fullness of the priesthood. And then it goes on to say in uh, verse 33, For verily I say unto you that after ye have had sufficient time to build me a house wherein the ordinances of baptizing for the dead belongeth, for that which is the same instituted before the foundation of the world, your baptisms for your dead cannot be acceptable unto me. So there's there's a reference to time, but I think it's that reference to time as I was able to find it. I have to go back through with, with that to see if we can find something more suitable. What do you think? Yeah, I've got something actually, I, well, you know, somewhere in here, and I don't remember the verse, but you do have this oft repeated phrase that he'll come quickly, right? That, Interesting. That, that the Lord will come quickly and you don't know when, and by the way, and, and of course, where is he going to come? That's what the, that's the point of the temple, right? That's the place where, where the Lord comes. Back in verse six, which may be less related i think what i just mentioned which i don't know what verse it is is more more closely related to this idea of sacred time but you do have here in verse six for behold i am about to call upon them to give heed to the light and glory of zion for the set time has come to favor her so you do have some references to time i think the the one that's most relevant though is the idea that he'll come quickly because the place of come of the coming of the lord the place where the lord comes is the temple yeah and, and so this goes back to the conversation do we need to have a physical edifice is there a, is there objective, sui generis, religious space and time, or is it deemed sacred time? And you know, for me personally, I, I fall more into the deemed category. And I'm, th- my romantic self is sui generis, <laughs> is that objective quality. But I think the 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 place where about ninety percent of the time that I exist is over in the deemed quality. That that meaning is something that we create for ourselves. And that when I go into the temple and I experience those, those experiences and have those kinds of quote unquote spiritual experiences, that those experiences that I'm having come from the, the, the meaning, the beliefs, the traditions, the experiences, everything that makes Shiloh Shiloh, I bring to that experience and I'm having my own unique experience because that temple is about building me. That's symbolic of me building me with God, my relationship with God. Right, and that's not about a building. I mean, it's not about an edifice. It's not about an edifice in what way? Well, it's about building you, not about building, you know, brick upon brick. Ah, yeah. That's my point, right? I'm not so sure it's about an edifice, right? It's about building you and me. It's not about building, you know, with, with bricks and mortar. Yes. Yeah, it's it's a place where we can... The, the place with a brick and mortar, or if it was temporal with a sheet and, and lashed timbers that we, we can go into and that we can physically feel ourselves and we can go into this physical space and it creates a sense of, of purpose. And with the senses that we have of sight and of smell and taste and touch that we can, we can enter into a place that is separated, the sacred from the profane it carries an incredible amount of utility in how we in how we can approach those those moments of the sacred in in how that it is there so 
again, this doesn't answer the question, is it inherently absolutely necessary or does God reserve to reveal these things in those sacred edifices because of their deemed utility or because of their objective existence? But I think the question is really important anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, what else? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the thing that I wanted to bring out the most was this this point that we've been making about sacred space. Yeah. When I look at this section, one of the things that you said that we wouldn't have a lot to talk about here t- tonight uh, as we're recording this, one of the reasons is because a lot of these, as you've pointed out, a lot of these a lot of these verses, right? It's a really long section on the one hand. On the other hand, a lot of these verses are these kind of revelations that are for particular people that we can, you know, we can of course see, does this apply to me? Meaning, is my situation similar? Can I take the, the whatever the Lord is telling so-and-so and apply it to myself? Sure, we can do that. We can liken the scriptures to ourselves. But for the most part, these these revelations aren't really for us in a sense, right? They're for these particular people and they're, and they're not as relevant to us necessarily, even though we could liken them unto ourselves. And that's always a good exercise and you can always do that. You can do that with, you can do that with literature, with novels. I can learn from Jean Valjean how to be a better person, but it wasn't written in that way for me and neither were these revelations given to me personally. Right, you're not you're not the one being called to build the Nauvoo Temple, for instance, right? You know, there right. was a, a time and a place reserved for 180 years ago. Right, but I am called to build me, right? Or right. To participate as co-creator with God in building whatever He's building with me. That the quote from C.S. Lewis comes to mind, where C.S. Lewis talks about the the Lord. You think that He's trying to? I can't remember how he puts it, but it's sort of like He's trying to maybe put a new coat of paint on on the house or something that that is you throw out a new wing or something but he's really just trying to have the whole house down and rebuild this whole new house that's just this mansion that you just can't even imagine right which the temple in some sense symbolizes in terms of its aesthetic quality right that it's going to be of the finest materials and and it's going to be beautiful and it's going to be this again this sacred space a place where you can be close to God, right? A place where the presence of God is felt, where the presence of God is a reality. And that presence can be felt. I mean, you know, if I'm personally, me personally, if I'm looking to feel close to God, I'm with Emerson. I don't find God in buildings. Although I have to admit, I'm much more likely to be, to experience a sense of awe in a beautiful building which a temple usually tries to be. Some, I think, fail. Personally, I think they, they fail. I'd, I'd rather be in one of these incredible cathedrals in Europe than in some of the our own temples that, in my mind, fail to achieve that aesthetic quality. But some of them really you know, hit a home run for me. And so I can find that kind of aesthetic value, and that can be part of the experience. That can be an important part of the experience. It certainly is distracting for me when it doesn't happen that way. And I'm not going to name temples, but um, but I can certainly name on the other on the other end of the spectrum, beautiful temples that I've seen, like Nauvoo, for example. The Nauvoo temple is gorgeous. Um, there's other temples where I felt like I'm in a spaceship, and and I don't mean that as a compliment. <laughs> 
yeah, there's definitely a different aesthetic. But do you see what I mean? I mean, I can I can experience God in nature. I can go to the actual because the, this is supposed to be the mountain of the Lord. I can actually climb a mountain, and I can be closer to God in a sense, right? That mountain, usually, by the way, the the axis mundi was related to a mountain, right? This idea that the idea of the center of the world and the axis of the world. It is related to a mountain. We have in, in ancient uh, cosmography and all the way through, I mean, you can see this in Dante, right? Where God is, you know, thrust Lucifer down and and hell is this crater from him coming down to earth. And that pushes out of the other side and what was thought of as the southern hemisphere, Mount Purgatory, at the top of which sits the Garden of Eden, right? That's the cosmography. Interesting. You know, it was, you know, something you said there was brought out an idea when I was reading verses 26 about the temple building us. Because it is the temple is the the symbolism of our own personal journey. And so part of this creating, creating the sacred self or in another way that we've talked about it is that we are always already sacred, but this process is not a metaphysical one, but an epistemic one. It's not a becoming something we weren't before. It's a recognition of what we have always already been when we are, that the, the fall, as it were, was over our own construct, our own awareness of reality. And so as we begin to repent, that, that falls, the, the temporal false self falls from our eyes. Sure. And isn't it, isn't it interesting in, in, in that context that the temple experience begins with a divestiture, right? And ends with an investiture, right? You're being, you're being stripped of identity and you're being clad with a new identity. Yeah. Talk more about that. I do have something to say about this. <laughs> you know, you, you're talking, you're coming, you have the investiture, right? you have the, you have the garment of the Holy priesthood. You have the, what is this? The, the, Nibley says that the, that the, um, whatever the robe, what's it called? The robe of many colors, right? The technicolor robe. It's not a technicolor robe. This is, this is the garment of the priesthood. And there, as, and I, I can't remember where it comes from, but there's this idea that as you descend the heavens, you're stripped of layers of, you know, of symbolic clothing. And then as you reascend, right, you're actually, you're, you're, you have an investiture, which means this is what the, this is what the endowment is translated into Spanish as investidura, which is an investiture, which means you're being clad. But I, it's not, I'm not remembering the, I'm not remembering how this works. I have it written down somewhere. I gave a talk on it and I just, it's not coming to me in a way that I feel like I can talk about it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Can, can you talk about it? Well, not specifically to that point, but I think it's a fascinating point, you know, because I'm thinking about it in terms of the baptism was, is that divesture, uh, divestiture, <laughs> I can, I can speak of the old self or of the dying off of that, that false self and coming out into the new awareness and the aesthetic kind of the, the high, the highest part of the ascension is where now we are invested into the creation. It's the moving forward into whatever it is that we're going to create. And I, I think in a lot of ways, we take this kind of creation speech and we really dip it into a lot of Americana because a lot of this whole American civic religion is all about 
um, actions and being really busy and rabid individualism and creating profits, right? When in a more ancient sense, or simply breathing is in itself an act of creation. And so it's not like we have to go out and to conquer the world as an act of creation or to go out and build our own personal Mona Lisa or to do something so magnificent and contribute to the world that this act of creation is simply existence. And when we realize that just our own existence is sufficient, it really allows us to be able to then break through and not be hindered by the false narratives, the false notions, the things that hold us back. When we realize that we are already sufficient, it gives us the grounds of being able to move forward in kind of even acting and doing whatever it is that we want. It's like an infinite world of possibilities. And whatever those possibilities are, that's what we get to do. And that's how we get to grow. And so it's not this sense that we have to like conquer the world, right? We have to go out into, and to really make something to start our own business or to do something magnificent. It's just to be present and to exist. And you know, that presentness, Christopher, you and I talked about earlier on about making the ground holy. You know, last week we talked about living on the land as for years, and the saints were really, really practicing this because when they were kicked out of Kirtland, they thought they were going to be there forever. When they made it down into, into Missouri, they thought they were going to be in there forever. When they made it to Nauvoo, they, well, they thought they were going to be there forever. Every place that they went, it was really this, this hope of being there forever, but it was a very temporary calling, you know, a few years even. And this, this call live on the land as for years. And what comes about from that is really this sense of presentness. You know, I, I said last week that when my wife and I, we moved around like 22, 23 times in 10 years and we'd lived in many different wards, we really had to adopt this kind of way of thinking in that when we came into a ward, we came into a new, a new place that we just didn't sit in the very, very back and just let the world pass us by. Um, that we lived there as if we were going to live there for years. And so that, that changed our mindset and allowed us to become more, more participating and more investing, more investing into the world around us. And I, so I, th- I think that's a lot of what's going on, especially in sections 121 and 23. And again, here in one, 124, we see the Lord having them reinvest their time back into a present moment there on the land. And, and this seems to have a physical effect onto how the saints live. That the saints now become proactively engaged and focused on what they're doing. And it's, it almost, you know, this really comes back again to that con- conversation. Is, is this a necessary universal need for them to do this kind of thing? To be able to live on the landers for years? Or was this one of those temporary moments and a matter of utility that God recognized what they needed when they needed it, and he just came down? Because I think in a lot of ways, we read scripture far too much as a universal truism than we do in recognizing that the commands, the dictates, the things that God gave to the people, and I think you were speaking to this, Christopher, is that when God gives commandments in scripture, 
that when he gives those commandments in scripture, it's for those people. And so the takeaway is not necessarily the commandment itself, but that God recognizes the needs of the individual when they're there, and he speaks to the needs of the individual when they need it. Yeah, so so it's it would be ironic, Shiloh, if you were being asked to live on the Lannis for years temporarily. Do you see the irony of that? Is it, is it possible? Sure. But it is kind of ironic, I think. And but, but one thing I can say, I think, you know, this idea of living on the land as if for years, is that how you put it? Is, is this idea of being present? Look, you and I have both had the experience. If you think you're not going to be there for too long, well, you don't bother putting down roots, right? You don't really get involved. You think, okay, I've already been through this. I know I'm going to get kicked out of here again. Like I said, it's got to be really hard for the saints to, to feel like, okay, yeah, we're really putting down roots this time. Build a, an edifice? Are you kidding me? Okay, but the Lord's saying, no, do this, right? And it doesn't matter that in the end, and maybe this is what you're getting at, in the end, if you're, if you're going to move on and you're not actually going to finish doing the thing you were trying to do, especially if you think it's about building an edifice with brick and mortar, right? But what are you really building? You're building yourself. It reminds me of this idea that the, that the prophets, one of the prophets taught and one of the, um, you know, the Latter-day prophets taught that when you're having a garden, right, that you're not just growing vegetables, you're growing children, right? You're actually, as a family, if you're, you know, you're bringing your kids into this, you're teaching them and you're growing them just as much as you are growing the tomatoes. And if the tomatoes don't grow, and, and now I'm adding, I'm ad-libbing here, but if the tomatoes don't grow, the children grow, right? In this process, even if you fail as a gardener in some sense to produce the the, the tomatoes or whatever you're growing. So if you think in terms of finishing the edifice, then you might be run off the land again, this sacred space, and it's not, it turns out it wasn't sacred. Well, yes, it was. While you were there, it was. Because the, sa- the sacred space is wherever, the, the promised land is wherever the promised people are. It's not an empty space that, that people move into, and now it's, it's the place where the promised people are. And so the promised land is the promised land because the promised people are there, and they're doing what the promised people do. And if you're building people, then it doesn't matter if you ever finish building the edifice or if it gets burned down or you run off the, the land and the, the holy place and the sacred place or sacred space becomes wherever you are. You're at, you're always at the center of the, of the universe, right? Especially, I mean, God's people, well, of course they're at the center of the universe, right? And that's, of course, it's true for everyone is at the center of the universe, right? And that's important too as a perspective because we can say, whatever, mathematically or astronomically or whatever, scientifically, that there is no center of the universe. But what's that to me? As far as I'm concerned, my point of view, just like when when Noah comes out and he says, the whole earth is flooded, which by the way, edits means earth or land. It could be the whole planet, it could be the whole land. But the point is, from his point of view, as Nibley points out, well, the whole earth is flooded. What does he know? That's all he can see, right? This is author point of view. So you're building, if you're building people, then it is important for us, the lesson that we can take away is to be present. To be present, to be doing the work that is the building of the kingdom that is within us. So it doesn't matter what buildings we put our effort into stand or fall around us, as long as we're building the kingdom of God that is within us we're making spiritual progress. I love that. And in fact, I, I don't have anything else to say after that. <laughs> well, that's what I wanted to say. Well, awesome. Amen. Amen. 
All right, everyone. Well, thank you for joining joining us today. I knew today was going to be a little bit of a shorter episode in getting through this with uh, what Christopher and I had planned to say. I like where the conversation went. Thank you again for coming and being with me today. Me too. My pleasure, Shiloh. Awesome. Well, everyone, we will see you back next week. And unless plans change, it'll be Ben and I. <laughs> but, we, but we don't know. Occasionally, I call just the day before. And I'm like, hey, there's an assignment that's coming up. I'm really behind schedule. I need to get this done. And Christopher, thank you so much for being there to call on a minute's notice. And you're always so gracious with your time. So thank you again. And, and next week, we'll be back with Ben. And until then, I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Christopher Rotato. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.